You're listening to a Richwood Church podcast. I was reflecting uh, this past week on all of the incredible things that took place this past year. And when you start to add it up, it's pretty amazing. We had COVID hit and we had all of these mixed messages about what COVID was going to do and how to handle it. And we had to work through that. We had differing opinions on how to deal with the riots uh, in Minneapolis. There were charges of election fraud. Cynicism in the media continues to grow. And trust continues to drop in America. And many wonder, who can I actually believe in? Who can I trust? And on top of that, as believers, we know that unchurched people are looking at how we live And they're asking the same questions. And this year we've had celebrity pastors fall into immorality. Abuse has surfaced in many churches and is being dealt with. There's theological sniping going on between different denominations. And no wonder non-believers look at the church and say, well, I don't really want anything to do with that. And so given all of those circumstances, this section of the Sermon of the Mount will tell us, and Jesus will tell us, that in order to introduce Christ to a lost world, we must be men and women of integrity. And that's integrity of in every area of our lives, not just part of our lives, sexuality and marriage and being trustworthy. Because unless we are those things, no one's going to want to be with us. No one will want to be our friends. We won't have the kind of input into people's lives that we want. But if you are pursuing that course and people begin to trust you, then you've already begun to accomplish the mission because you are making Jesus known. And so this is a really important section because what Jesus is going to say that for the effective Christian, for the one who really loves me, for the one who wants to be in my kingdom, it's really all about integrity. And so if you have a Bible, if you have a tablet or a phone or something, you can turn with me to Matthew 5, beginning in verse 27. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 27. We can't pass out Bibles right now because of COVID, but you can always follow along on the screen. So here, Jesus is teaching about integrity. This is where he lands on the sermon in the Sermon on the Mount. And there are three sections to this sermon that we're going to look at today. Living in integrity in the areas of sexuality, in the area of marriage and divorce, and in the area of trustworthiness. And it's really an exciting passage, but it's a hard passage. It's a piercing passage. But let's begin with section one, because the Lord has a purpose for all of this, and we're going to talk about proper sexuality. So first, the Lord commands integrity regarding sexuality. And his teaching is very clear here. If you look with me, beginning in verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. 
And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And so Jesus is taking this very seriously, and he begins this section of integrity regarding sexuality using the seventh of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20:14. do not commit adultery. And while our society discards this, Jesus is actually tightening the importance of it. And Jesus was operating in a male-dominated culture. And in this culture, many men in the ancient Mediterranean believed that it was healthy to have lust. And there were even magic spells that you could conjure up that would cause a man to allegedly have more sexual desire and cause him to possess any woman he wanted, even if she was married. It's the kind of sickness that Jesus is speaking into. Now, all of the Jewish leaders didn't go along with that. The Pharisees, for example, the antagonists of Jesus, they knew enough about the law to know that this commandment was important. The problem was not all of them followed it. And so, again, Jesus isn't attacking their doctrine. He's not bothering with that. He is going right to their heart and how they understand how to practice this. And his challenge couldn't be more relevant to you and me. Because Christians are swayed by culture as well. I was recording an episode of our, our radio show on KTAS, our podcast called Life Support This Week. And we had a, an expert that was telling us about the trauma that comes with sexual addiction. And so I asked her how widespread this is. And she said, well, in the church... About 50% of the people that attend church are struggling with some kind of a sexual addiction. And, and I stopped. And I said, no, wait a minute. Can you give me that number again? She said, 50%. And likely more because people are afraid to talk about it. And so to think we're somehow not a part of what Jesus is saying, or we're above this, or we cannot get entangled in this, would not be being honest with ourselves. And I think we'd all admit, you know, that the Bible is clear on sexual purity, that we want to be pure, yet many still watch television shows, engage in the internet, listen to music that's got explicit sexual content. And many just brush it aside. Well, you know, it's important to the storyline. Well, I'm mature enough I can handle that. I don't have a weakness in that area. I'm watching with my spouse. It's not good enough for Jesus because he cares about what's in your heart. And so before you justify this behavior under the guise of serious intellectualism or the freedom that Paul gave us in his writings, I want to show you again Jesus' words in verse 28. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And women aren't immune to lust either, so you can, you can derive this for a woman too. And so this is dangerous. And what it should do is drive us to this deep sense of humility of our need for the gospel. Because the only way we can navigate in the way Jesus wants us to navigate this culture is through transformation of the Holy Spirit and God's grace 
and the, and, the, and the gospel that empowers us to live a life that would be honoring to Christ. If we try to power through this on our own, we're just going to get discouraged. Because we need the gospel every day, every minute, and every thought needs to take captive to what God wants us to be. And so I don't want you to blow this off because this integrity issue is important. And in order to become the kind of community that we want to be, we need to be individually seeking purity and seeking the power of the Holy Spirit. Because if we are not, we will not be clean vessels through which God can speak to us. And for example, tonight we have our annual meeting and we have a really exciting future ahead of us. And I'm excited about the things we're going to present. And I'm excited because the board's excited. And we're going to vote on some things. We're going to vote on the budget. The budget reflects all of these initiatives we've got going that God has laid out there for us. But if we are not pure of heart, then we aren't going to be able to hear God. And Paul made this point uh, in the New Testament. He said, you know, if you, if you unite yourself to a prostitute, then you're uniting the entire body of Christ to a prostitute. In other words, we are all in this together. And so we can't just say, well, that's for somebody else. Because it's really important. Our community and the way that we can thrive is hitched to this idea. And the other thing, too, that's really important to understand is that if you lust, then the person that you're lusting after, and maybe somebody that's a believer, your brother and sister in Christ, then you are simply making that person an object of your lust. And they are made in the image of God. They are not objects to be lusted after. And so it's really important that if we want to follow Christ, that we do this. Now, how do we practically work through this? Well, Jesus' words in 29 and 30 are really startling. And of course, he's using hyperbole, but he says this in 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Or 30, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, this doesn't mean that we should dismember ourselves, okay? So don't go home and take out your kitchen knife. That would frighten me. But it, it, it does mean that because lust is in the heart, that we need to do whatever it takes to be the kind of pure believers that Jesus is desiring in his kingdom. It's a matter of integrity. And many times people say, I, I, I don't want to be connected to pornography. I want to stop this. I want to stop that. But they don't really want to. Because it gives them some kind of life inside. And what Jesus is saying is, no, you've got to cut that out. Whatever is causing that in your life, get rid of it. Now, I do want to clarify a couple of points here. First, this is not at all a divine prohibition against the normal attraction between a man and a woman. God made male and female. They're, they're, they are meant to fit together. This is how God designed us. Marriage is for a man and a woman. If it's not a man and a woman, it's not marriage. And so God isn't saying... It's wrong to be attracted, but as a pastor, I can tell you, I have seen so many people's lives destroyed by pornography, destroyed by acting out outside of the marriage 
And then, sadly, they come to the realization that this has happened, and they've lost so much. And so, please don't flirt with this stuff. Don't, don't get yourself connected to this stuff. Stay, stay away from it. And I also want to say this. If you have been down that road, or if you're on that road, there is grace, forgiveness, and there is help for you. And so, I don't want you to live in shame. I want you to be free, and that's what Jesus wants too. But it all starts with lust, and that happens in the heart. So that's why integrity in the area of sexuality is so vital. All right, now on to section two. This portion deals with integrity in the area of marriage and divorce. And if you're not married, this is still really important because there are principles here that you can apply to your your own life. So next, the Lord commands integrity regarding marriage. And for this now, we can look at verses 31 and 32. Here Jesus reinforces the idea that we are to live our marriages in a godly fashion, and that integrity will speak to others. So if you look at verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So you see this repeating pattern. You see, it was also said there in verse 31. That refers to the Pharisees. That refers to their twisting of the law. It was also said that was them. But then he would say, But I say to you, in 32, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. So, they told you this, now I'm telling you what it really means. And this pattern goes all the way through the Sermon on the Mount. And it's really interesting because amongst Jesus' listeners, especially amongst the the religious elites, there would have been two schools of thought. There were some who followed this man called Hillel, and he had this concept that it was permissible for a husband to divorce his wife for any reason. And then there was another teacher named Shammai who believed that divorce was permissible only for major offenses. But Jesus doesn't get into those technicalities because Jesus is about the heart. And while the religious leaders scuffle over all of these find points of what you can do and what you can't do, Jesus is saying, no, no, you've you've got to understand why God made marriage. You have to understand how important marriage is to God. But he does put an exception clause here that would make divorce acceptable. So we see it in verse 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. So the exception clause, if you want to call it that, is sexual immorality. But if you want to do that, you have to define what sexual immorality is. And so that Greek word here is porneia, where we get pornography, but it can refer to all kinds of sexual sin. It can refer to adultery, prostitution, Incest, anything that's outside of God's bonds of marriage and acceptability in the word. And it's a word that simply means sexual uncleanness. So Jesus is putting this out there, but it wasn't God's original intent. 
God didn't design marriage for there to be an out clause. He, in Matthew 19, 4 and 5, later on in the book, we see what this is for. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus is saying, as God formed marriage, he meant it to be a lasting institution. He meant it to be forever. But he does put an exception clause here because our hearts have been hardened by sin. In Matthew 19, 8, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allows you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And so, in God's grace, he understands our sin. And so, he knows our hearts are hardened. And so, Jesus reflects that with that phrase, if there is sexual immorality. Now, the reason marriage is so sacred to God, and we don't talk enough about this, is what it reflects, what it symbolizes. We, can, we as believers, we can have very little conscious idea of what it's like to live in the Trinity, where there is perfect oneness, perfect unity, so God gave us marriage as a way to get a glimpse of what that is like as a gift. It also reflects the deep relationship and unity between father and son that we don't understand, but we get a glimpse of. And then it reflects the relationship between Jesus, who is the groom, and the church, you and me, who is the bride, and his deep love for the church, his deep his sacrifice for the church. And that's what marriage represents, and that's why it's so important. That's why God takes it so seriously. And divorce was rampant in the first century, just like it is now. And so we need to take this seriously. Now, I want to take, make two points here. The first one is this. Jesus' exception does not constitute an excuse to escape a difficult marriage. I've seen people do this. They have a hard marriage. Their spouse messes up. They're out. Biblical divorce. I'm out of here. And I would like you to read 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 14 when you get home. You'll see that the exception really is for those who have struggled to stay in the marriage, who want to work on the marriage, but their spouse is in unrepentant sexual sin. And so it's not, it's not an out clause to say, well, I can do better for the next time around. This is a way for me to move on. Secondly, and this is also really important, it doesn't mean if you are divorced and remarried, and if, even if your divorce was not what we would call a biblical divorce, that your marriage is not cursed. It, it's, it matters to God. You know, God is a God of today and tomorrow. God isn't a God of yesterday. And so you can be forgiven, and God wants to bless your marriage. There's no better example in Scripture than, than David and Bathsheba. It's, it's really it's fascinating how, how low he went. He, 
He slept with this woman. He killed her husband. He's fairly serious. And then he married her. So you would think, well, well, God, you know, going to want them to fail, right? That's terrible. Well, they did pay a consequence. They lost their firstborn. But through that marriage, God continued the line of Christ from, from Abraham through Bathsheba, David, and all the way into the manger. So God blessed that marriage. And God wants to bless your marriage. So I don't want you to walk out of here and say, oh, man, I, I so messed up that uh, I, we can't make this right. No, that's not true. It's not about shaming. And I know this teaching isn't easy, and I know these points are hard, and I know it opens wounds, but you are not judged. You're forgiven. The beautiful thing about God is no matter, no matter what we do, and sexuality is so personal and so shaming that we can go to God with it and we can be open about it and he will forgive us. So you are not judged. But at the same time, I want to make it clear that healthy marriages are the bedrock of a healthy community, a healthy church community. And I think you can make a really good case for the problems we're experiencing in America right now is because of the disintegration of the family and the redefinition of the family. We've, we've, we've taken the family out of the word of God and we've defined it in crazy ways. We've defined sexuality in crazy ways. And now we're reaping the consequences of that. My friend who was, ran the gangs in Minneapolis just looked at me one day and said, Paul, the problem isn't skin color. The problem is no fathers. And so healthy marriages are so important. And the Pharisees taught that just sticking to the finer points of the law, that was good enough. If you did that, you're good to go. But Jesus said, no, it's about the heart. Impurity is not acceptable. And you need to fight for marriage. So now we move to the final section. And Jesus teaches that it's important that we are good for our word. And so that's the question we need to ask. Do people trust your word? Because that's how you can show them the way to Christ. The Lord commands his followers to be trustworthy. So look with me at verses 33 through 37. Again, Jesus is going to skirt around all the legalities. He zeroes in on the motive. So 33, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old. Who's that? Pharisees. You shall not swear falsely but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, here's the right interpretation, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Wow, that's strange. We don't really take oaths by our head. Um, we have staff members that don't have any hair. They couldn't do that, Walt. Here's what this phrasing doesn't mean. It doesn't mean you can never take an oath. The Hebrew Bible, in fact, has oaths and vows in it. The point is, since God hears every word. You don't need a formal oath because you should be telling the truth all the time. That's what Jesus is saying. 
Let your words be truth-filled so there's no question that you are telling the truth. And then you earn people's trust. They want to be like you. They want, they want more of what you have. Because in this culture, oaths were often used by religious figures to deceive people. And the victimized person would believe what was being told, but the, the, the speaker would use these crazy oaths to hide intent. So Jews would swear by heaven, they'd swear by earth, they'd swear by Jerusalem, their own heads. They wouldn't do it by God, though. They didn't want divine judgment. But this is exactly like crossing your fingers and telling a lie, and somehow that's going to make it all better. Jesus is saying, don't, don't be involved with that. Let your speak be honest. Let people know that you're telling the truth. Now, don't go tell someone, you know, they're fat or, you know, I mean, uh, this, is, this is common sense, okay? Now, if you look in verse 37, he says, what you simply, what you say, what you say be simply yes or no. If you start to embellish, it becomes a playground for Satan. Satan is the father of lies in John 8, 44. And it's so tempting sometimes to tell stories that embellish the point just a little bit, that make it a little bit funnier, that, that helps us to look better. Jesus is saying, don't do that. He's saying, be good for your word. It's also very easy to make promises that we don't keep, we forget. And I, I forget to return emails and phone calls, and I'm sorry if I've done that to you. Part of being a man or a woman of your word is by communicating properly and following through on what you say you're going to do. And I'm not talking about mistakes. We all make mistakes. We all misspeak. We speak out of turn. What Jesus is talking about is deceit that's purposeful. And it comes in many shapes and sizes, but it does destroy. And it destroys a church community. A church community is built on trust. And I, I know when I read this, I could think of people in our church that when they say something, I can 100% depend on its authenticity because there's no guile in them. They're not trying to push an agenda. And that is so refreshing. And that's what Jesus is saying. Because when integrity is at the center of our relationships, our community will thrive. And Jesus will be made known. But if it's not, it will die. So integrity stands for purity of the heart. Respect for marriage. Being a person of your word. And here's the truth of the matter. This includes all of us. The Lord calls all of his followers to live lives that reflect well on him. This is not something where you can be looking at the person next to you saying, boy, I'm glad you're hearing this. You know, like, or, you know, you're going to go home and I can't wait to tell my, my, my wife or husband about this. No, this is for you. This is for me. We, we can't sit this one out. It, the stakes are too high. The world is lost. People need Jesus Christ. We need to be pure vessels in order to make him known. They're looking at you because you claim to be a follower of Christ. So if you're going to claim to be a follower of Christ, then live like it. 
And in order to become a person that makes Jesus known by living like him, your life needs to be above reproach. Now, you are going to sin. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to screw up. Here's the best thing to do. Go to the person, say you're sorry, and mean it. I'm sorry, but it's not an apology. And then say you're sorry to God and move on. But generally speaking, we need to live lives that are above reproach. That's possible because of the power of the gospel. And when it comes to being an effective Christian, it really is a matter of integrity. And so why don't you stand, and I want to pray over you before you go, but I would like you to take just 30 seconds, and I would like you just to pause and turn your heart toward God and talk to him about anything in this text that may have struck you, an area of your life maybe that you need to work on, or, or something that you've overcome and you're thankful for. Why don't you just do that in quiet, and then I'll pray over you. Lord God, I'm thankful for this faithful flock that you've brought together at Ridgewood Church. We have been brought together for this particular time, this particular place, and you've given us a mission and a future, but each one of us, Lord, needs to examine what's happening in our heart in order to help our community to thrive. And I know for me, God, as I went through this text, there were areas that you you pricked me on. I needed to think about and repent of, and I'm thankful for the word that does that. And I pray, God, for individuals here that, that might be struggling in these areas. Help them to get help. Help them to be honest. Help them to walk into the light. And for those that have had victory, help shame not to be a part of their life. Help them to walk in the joy of freedom that you offer us. That's, that's why this is all here. You want us to be free. And so, God, this is hard, but it's possible. And Thank you for your grace, and thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the message of the gospel. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on the Ridgewood Church Podcast. For more faith-based resources or information about Ridgewood Church, visit us at myrwc.org.